All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to speak to you today from New York City on the 24th day of August 2021. I do want to thank all of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. I encourage you to send along whatever comments you might have about our show. Send them to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. We do want to thank our sponsors for today's show. Uh, they are Noble Resources, Eloro Resources, Hannon Metals, Labrador Gold Corp, Lion One Metals, SK Mining Corp, NV Gold Corp, and Firefox Gold. Michael Oliver is not with us today, but uh, given the action in the gold markets, I believe it makes sense to just pass along a couple of his remarks that he made this past Sunday, August 22nd. He said, regarding a 10-day, his 10-day average, Michael said the following, and I quote, Bears have had a few days to beat gold down from that short-term resistance, but instead, all they achieved was a stall. Give them Monday to do something. Otherwise, assume that gold is likely to move on through that 10-day momentum decline. A $1,786 close on Monday will clear that line and take out most recent prior highs on that line that occurred in late July. That would not be a major event, but a sign that the rapid rebound from the ridiculous massive gold dumping from Sunday night, August 8th, was perhaps their last barrage. It backfired on them, end of quote. And then regarding uh, weekly momentum, uh, Michael was looking for a close above 1818 this, uh, this week. Uh, and regarding a quarterly close, he's looking for a close above 1865. That is the quarter that ends in about five weeks from now. And he notes that going into the next quarter, that is the final quarter of this year, the hurdle that gold needs to get over would be 1825. So that would be in the fourth quarter of this year. In other words... Um, the the hurdles keep falling as the momentum uh, uh, levels decline. So we'll keep an eye on it. Right now, I, I looked a little bit ago, gold was selling at about 18.06, so it certainly has cleared that first hurdle on Monday. Uh, so uh, we'll have Michael on next week to get his uptake then, uh, and um, uh, we'll, we'll hear what he has to say. Who knows what happens between now and next Tuesday. I've titled today's show, Preparing for Accelerating Price Inflation. Lynn Alden and Dr. Quentin Henning return. And Chen Lin will be with me momentarily as well. Uh, Lin will explain why rates of inflation may be transitory, but why price levels are likely to continue to rise, and possibly dramatically so. Her outlook for oil and gas is very bullish because she doesn't believe alternative sources of energy can come on stream nearly as rapidly as assumed by many investors. She also favors alternative forms of money like gold and silver 
and remains open to owning Bitcoin as well as other cryptocurrencies. So we'll get her take on those topics as well in the second half of today's show. Um, certainly one way to protect your wealth, and Lynn certainly is an advocate of that, is gold. And another way is owning companies that are finding very profitable, high-grade gold deposits and silver deposits in the ground. So we'll be talking to Quentin Henning after our first uh, commercial break. He's going to give us an update on SK Mining's VMS project. That's a gold and silver-rich VMS project, very much akin to the SK Creek gold deposit, which is one of the richest uh, precious metals deposits in Canadian mining history. Well, uh, SK Mining believes they uh, have, have a good shot at finding at least another one of those on their very large-scale project just south of the SK Creek gold mine in British Columbia. So that uh, Quentin will be with us in the second uh, in the second uh, segment of today. But right now, I'm really happy to tell you that my good friend Chen Lin is with me. Thanks for joining me again, Chen. Thank you, Jay. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad to have you here because you've you've uh, you know your track record has been really very remarkable in terms of timing and finding biotech stocks. Uh, they they're very volatile these things, and people get you know they get way overpriced and then they crash and you've been able to pick up the pieces when these things have crashed at times and made a lot of money for yourself and for your subscribers. Uh, and the one that you just told me about and one that I'm adding to my own newsletter is Traceda Inc. Uh, trades only about 50 million shares outstanding, Chan, I think. And at a $4 price today, as where I saw it a little earlier today, it gives it a market cap of only $200 million, which is pretty small compared to a lot of its peers. Uh, and the company is in phase three testing of a drug that appears to it appears to show some real efficacy with regard to slowing down kidney disease. Um, and here's a stock, though, that was trading, Chen, late in 2019 at $44. Uh, it's now trading at $4. Um, you know, I'd like, you, I'd like you to tell me something. You know, why do you think, what's going on with this company? Tell, tell the story to our listeners, and why do you think nobody really wants the stock now when just a short time ago it was selling at 10 times this price? Yes, hi. Thanks, Jay. Uh, yeah, I love sell-offs, uh, either in biotech, in gold, or in energy, in any space. You know, I, I like uh, to buy bargains, right? This stock down more than 90% from peak to chop. Uh, last year, I was by Amherst. That was down more than 80%. Yes, I and remember. Recently, I feel uh, biotech has bottomed. I was buying 80%, uh, n- another stock down 80% today. I'm buying another one down 80%. So all these are sold off you know, violently. Uh, one of the reasons is COVID. COVID slowed down the trial. Imagine people have fear, are fearful of going to hospital, going fearful yeah. of seeing doctors. So the trial got slowed down. The new drug sales got slowed down because people don't go to hospital. You know, they try to avoid hospital anymore. And then it's very hard to communicate with the doctor about the benefit of a new drug. So you can see mm-hmm. another stock was down 60% TG, therapeutic. I own that for a long time. It down 60% with nothing, mm-hmm. just slightly sell. So this year, biotech is so down. It's one of the worst years in history for mm-hmm. uh, biotech industry. I really worry about uh, some of my friends who run biotech fund would go out of business. I even worry about them personal safety. I worry some may commit suicide or something because it's so bad. Market just is bad. So, but when they're down so much, there's opportunity, right? This Tricida is a very interesting company. It was $40 not long ago, as you said, and now down to $4. What changed? Uh, so basically, FDA told them they cannot approve 
the drugs for accelerated approval, not full approval, accelerated uh-huh. approval. Accelerated approval is the surrogate endpoint. So he said you reach this point, and then uh, get, if they give them a pass, like Sarepta, I used to own, like Immunomatic, I used to own. Yeah. Uh, so FDA saw that, and I agree with that. They gave approval, early approval. But for them, they actually reduce assets in the kidney. People, all the doctors think it's a good thing, but FDA say I don't see the clear connection between that versus uh, uh, benefit. That's just mm-hmm. FDA just seems just to say that. I mean, if they just say, okay, you come back and then you show me the benefit of that reducing mm-hmm. assets, which the company believe they will, they can provide. So when you apply for a salary approval, usually you do a confirm, confirmatory trial, right? Confirmatory trial, already done very, very long, extremely conservative, make sure it's positive. <laughs> usually it lasts for many, many years, if not a decade. So uh, they have a confirmatory trial in parallel with their salary approval, but once FDA reject their salary approval, then company can say, okay, I will prove to you using my confirmatory trial. Right, uh-huh. so they have uh, they have this ongoing confirmatory trial supposed to go to the end of 2023. The data in 2024 for biotech. This is a generation, you know. The nobody mm-hmm. cares. As it just <laughs> I'll see you yeah. in 2024, right? So, but if you hear carefully about a conference call, the recent conference call, things changed. The management, the, the trial progressed very well despite of COVID. The management seems to be confident they will stop the trial early next year. And then they are com- very confident they will have a positive data coming out. So <laughs> think about that. Uh, if they have a positive data coming out early next year, or maybe, you know, they stop the trial early next year, and the positive data may be mid or late next year. But when you stop the trial, people pay attention, right? So that will be too late to, to load up because the stock have very limited liquidity. Mm-hmm. The, uh, yeah. the, the thing is, they will, be, have the, they will be the same stage as they were at $40. The company mm-hmm. didn't <laughs> issue any shares. So uh-huh. 40 down. Last time they raised the 33 and changed the convertible, right? So yeah. that's, that's only that they're trading at cash. People absolutely sold off 90%, but the story is well and alive. So that's what I love it. Uh, so easily you can, it may not go to 40 when they stop the trial, go, go to double digit. It's very easy. Right mm-hmm. then, for a tr- trader, for investor, I always advise my, my people is to sell some. When, if you go to double digit, you can easily sell maybe a, a third, a quarter, cover your costs, the rest are free. So you don't take the risk uh, when the readout is, is, if the readout is negative, which is always mm-hmm. happened, right? But things happen. So that mm-hmm. also reminds me another stock we were talking about, Acasti, right? The readout was very negative, but I did mm-hmm. tell my subscribers to sell when the stock was like $3, you know, when the stock was more than five-folded, and we sell some, have free shares, go into the readout. Unfortunately, readout was negative, but still you don't lose money. You know what I'm saying, Jay? Mm-hmm. So, right. so, well, so, that, that, that's, that's, that's the same idea. It seems to be a very good opportunity. After I recommended in my newsletter, I found a, our a very famous hedge fund manager, of course, Steve Cohen. He's buying the stock, too, so, mm-hmm. which just gave me some confidence. You know, that sure. it's not... A, uh, sure. You know, that there are other people looking at this. Sure. Well, Chen, there's a couple of indications here. First of all, uh, I believe the data, they have had quite a few people in this uh, in this trial, in this phase three trial, and the data has been quite good, as I understand it. 
that's one thing that, uh, you know, that there is some public data is what I'm saying. And then you mentioned the conference call. But then also uh, something that you found sort of a, a, of a tip off was the fact that the company canceled its loan. It's $200 million loan, I believe, right? Or, or I don't know yeah, how much it was. Yeah. But they right, canceled right. a loan. Why would they do that? And I think a lot of people probably said, oh, they're giving up. They're, you know, they're, they're going out of business or something. Exactly. People don't dig in. They don't understand. But it's not in any report, but you have to listen to the last quarter conference. Call. They, mm-hmm. they canceled a loan because they're going to tell FDA we don't have money to complete it, the trial, so we need to stop the trial. Why do they want to stop the trial? Because they are confident the data will be positive. But all these are not written somewhere, but you really need to do the work, right? So that's what I like it. It's great. $4 and yeah. change, you know. Yeah, and Chen, you buy uh, they the did, they, and a dollar. And Chen, they did talk a little bit about the potential economics of this in terms of the savings, uh, because if they can keep people from going to that stage five where they need dialysis or kidney transplant, they can save an awful lot of money because dialysis is very expensive, kidney transplants are very expensive. So if this drug can, can save people from moving into, that, into, that, into those later stages or at least delaying it dramatically, it will save the... Uh, it will save insurance companies a lot of money, in theory. Oh, absolutely! And then think about dialysis. How inconvenient it's for for the you know for patient to yeah. to do right to go through that. It's a terrible experience. So I mean, they said they charge uh, like uh, three thousand per month. It's very very reasonable. Uh, but if they do that, and then this is the first approved drug for this chronic kidney disease, and they will be one of the best selling drug in the world. I mean, you're talking about. Uh, tens, maybe billions of dollars at least, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe if not tens. So it's the upside is in, enormous, and uh, the the company trading at cash. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's why those uh, why I wanted to have you come on, Chen, and talk about this. I think it's a very exciting story, uh, and I should tell folks it's ChenPix.com. Go to ChenPix.com to sign up for Chen's letter. Uh, he mentioned he's got a couple of more that he's looking at in similar. In a similar situation, well, somewhat similar situation, or diff- really, the stocks, biotechs have gotten taken down very big time this last uh, this last year or so. Uh, so uh, you know, Chen is very good at picking value up uh, when it's uh, when it's to be gotten at very low prices. Chen, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, we'll look to do it again sometime soon, hopefully. Thank you, Jay. All righty, folks. Well, don't go away because Dr. Quentin Henning will be with me right after our break. To talk about SK Mining, a very exciting story, one that I own, one that's in my newsletter, uh, and it's one that uh, very possibly might be on to a major uh, gold and silver, uh, precious metals, uh, polymetallic discovery in British Columbia. So don't go away, we'll be right back with Quentin Henning. Firefox Gold is actively exploring in Finland, where recent discoveries have sparked a new gold rush. Firefox controls a major portion of a prospective gold belt, giving the company a distinct advantage for exploration and strategic partnerships. The company's strong international leadership team, combined with its Finland-based exploration specialists, will put Firefox on the crest of the coming wave of gold discoveries. Firefox Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol FFOX. Go to firefoxgold.com to subscribe for updates. 
SK Mining Corp. Trading under the symbol ESK on the TSX Venture and ESKYF on the OTCQB is a mineral exploration company targeting precious metals, rich VMS deposits in the heart of British Columbia's Golden Triangle. SK Mining controls a prospective land package totaling 130,000 acres, which lies across a geologic trend that once hosted the prolific SK Creek Mine. With a world-renowned geological team, funding in place, and shareholders such as Eric Sprott, SK Mining is on the cusp of a world-class discovery. Go to skmining.com to subscribe for updates. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back, Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dr. Quinton Henning. He's here today to give us an update on SK Mining. It's a very exciting story, one that I own personally. It is one of my favorite picks in my newsletter. Uh, it trades in Toronto under the symbol ESK, ESKYF in the U.S., uh, 163 million shares at $1.74 earlier today in U.S. money, that is. Uh, so uh, you can... See that it's a it's a company that has uh, you know some recognition, but I think not nearly as much as it's going to get uh, if it's as exciting and as good as it seems to be to me. So let's hear from Quentin. Thanks for joining us again, Quentin. Always a pleasure, Jay. Always good to have you. That's for sure. Um, you're certainly uh, I, I'd have to check. You have to be one of the uh, most frequent guests on our show because uh, you've done so much work with some of these most exciting companies, and it's really great to have you. But today we'd like to get. An update on what's going on with SK. Uh, you have a very aggressive uh, drill program going on there. I think something like 13,500 meters uh, on that project up there in, in British Columbia. Uh, give us an update. What, how is the drilling program going, and what have you learned uh, this year so far from what you're seeing? And I, I don't believe we've gotten any drill results yet, or that is assays, but you can tell an awful lot by the drill core. So, so what can you tell us at this stage? Certainly. Look, uh, the 13,500 meters that you, you mentioned a minute ago, that's actually where we currently stand. In fact, uh, given the news release came out uh, about, two, well, almost four years ago, uh, you know, now it's probably closer to 14,000 meters. But that's out yeah. of a program that's targeting a minimum of 30,000 meters. I think we'll e- easily meet the 30,000 meters. Uh, in fact, I think we'll, we'll probably be able to drill more than that. Uh, last year, if you look, we were able to drill into, uh, I believe, around the third week in October. Uh, at the current rate, with four drills operating, we should be able to get that 30,000-meter uh, minimum. And I'm hoping it might be closer to, say, 34 or 35 with a little luck. And the reason this is so important is uh, the drilling this year is really focused on uh, a couple of objectives. One is... To, to obviously st- to step out from the known uh, mineralization that was encountered last year at the TV and the Jeff targets. Mm-hmm. 
which are kind of in the center, we'll call it the center of the property, mm -hmm. uh, but also test new targets, right? So we, we're trying to, uh, you know, tackle uh, the bigger property as a whole, too. And, and part of what's driven the, the new target concepts is data that's come back, both our SkyTem and then uh, earlier this year, our, our stream sediment uh, analyses, uh, the, mm -hmm. the BLEG analyses. Uh, for gold, and uh, you know what, what? What's really exciting is, you know, firstly at, at TB and Jeff, uh, most of the holes have seen. We have seen uh, visible indications of mineralization, very mm -hmm. similar to what was seen last year. All right, so in both cases, both TB and Jeff, it looks like those systems will expand as they step out around those. Uh, it looks like we we can now see which directions they remain open, which is. Mm -hmm. We can continue to pursue those, uh, and you know we're in some cases seeing indications things get better in certain directions. So, mm -hmm. you know, stay tuned on that front. That's very exciting development. Uh, the mineralization, you know, this is a vulcanogenic massive sulfide system, mm -hmm. so we're uh, able to see the stock work and replacement sulfides in these golds. But we've also seen some massive sulfides too, which is quite intriguing because the massive sulfide mineralization would indicate we do have uh, bona fide exhalative, like, you know, black smoker type uh, uh -huh. mineralization in, in some of these sequences, particularly at the TV area. All right, that's very exciting. Uh, and then uh, we've seen in some holes visible, uh, I'll call it precious metal minerals. Okay, These would include electrum, which is a, a natural uh, gold-silver alloy. Mm -hmm. uh, as well as uh, perargyrite, which is a, a silver sulfur salt, and then uh, tetrahedrite, another silver sulfur salt. So we, we see very good evidence of mineralization in these holes akin to what we saw last year. Now, uh, the crew uh, who's doing the groundwork, this is the crew that's out, they're, they're doing both soil sampling but also reconnaissance work, you know, getting out and observing outcrops and stuff. They... They've been tackling areas up section. Like, if you can imagine TV and Jeff, they sit mm -hmm. on the west side of a, a north-south trending uh, you know, ridge. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the rocks that we're targeting dip to the east. They dip into oh. the ridge. All right? So, mm -hmm. as you go up the hill, you're actually getting higher and higher into the stratigraphy. You're getting mm -hmm. up into uh, successions that are somewhat younger. And in theory, we should be getting very close to the sea floor, uh, the mm. sea floor. Now, that's the, that's this is the the sixty four thousand dollar question for this property is, can we find another SK Creek type deposit? Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, everybody that that is you know remembers SK Creek. It was a mine. And there, were, uh, let's see, about the mid nineteen nineties, I believe, up to uh, around the GFC is when they closed down. Uh, it was one of the highest grade deposits on Earth. In fact, I think it was the highest grade deposit on Earth for many years. And uh, why it was, you know, it was just an exceptionally precious metal rich BMS. It was a layered deposit. You know, it was a sheet of uh, plastic sulfides that was deposited as a layer within the sequence. And uh, it was right at the Paleo Sea floor. So why are we excited? Well, we're seeing sulfides. Mm -hmm. Up above the TV prospect in particular, we're seeing uh, mudstones with sulfides, we're seeing 
uh, sulfides in the, the rhyolite unit, which is up there, which is very similar to the rhyolite that's seen right below the SK mm-hmm. deposit. So we're we're very very intrigued uh, with what's going on. I think I think TV and Jeff are just the warm up act. Is is my hope that uh, as we you know work the geology uh, out and and get a better handle on exactly where things are as we step up the hill, I think yeah. we might might find something very special there. So. Yeah. Well, last year, I remember you, you saying it's it's possible that Jeff and TV could actually be one unit. Uh, is there any any further evidence of that? Or Yes. Look, uh, the, they have seen sulfide in and around uh, the TV and Jeff areas and, you know, just extrapolating where they're seeing the sulfide. I think there's still uh, likely validity to that uh that argument is that uh, the systems are connected. They are also now seeing stratigraphic correlation between the two. So, for example, the TV, uh, the bulk of the TV uh, mineralizing system is indeed hosted by the same layers, the same sequence of rocks that the upper Jeff horizon is hosted mm-hmm, by. So, mm-hmm. see that continuity too. Now, drilling will have to be done between the two, obviously, to prove it out. Yeah. But one of the short term uh, objectives we have. They are doing soils, uh, collecting soil data across broad areas, including that intervening two-kilometer area between the two targets. Uh, So that'll probably give us an indication. Uh, They're also extending that north and south from Jeff and and TV. Okay. Uh, So, you know, know, if you step back and look at the SkyTem, it's Mm -hmm. it's clear as a bell now that, you know, TV and Jeff fall on the – they fall on the east flank of the SK anticline, uh-huh. but it's clear as a bell. You can see that that east flank goes straight down to C10, the C10 area, which is where uh, we have a new target, you know, basically a new target that's going to be tested this year. So I think the whole east flank of the SK anticline is uh, wide open, wide mm-hmm. open. Oh. Well, you did have some some pretty, uh, pretty interesting and pretty robust intersections last year i, I can't I, I meant to review that before we went online but i don't know if you could give our listeners just an idea of what, what sort of grades you were getting last year uh look at i believe the the biggest you know headline interval that we had look we only, we only managed to drill 20 holes last year so yeah. <laughs> kind of an abbreviated program but uh, we hit a home run we hit something like uh, i think it was 35.5 meters of a little over, uh, it was around 10 or 11 gram gold equivalent, you know, gold with uh, a silver component. Uh, but it was a phenomenal drill intercept. It was, you know, getting close to 400 gram meter hole. And that's, you know, you don't see holes like that every day. That's Yeah, kind of- I'm, see- I'm seeing a headline here, 35.5 meters of 9.5 grams gold and uh, I think it's 70 grams silver. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Not bad. Well, I want to ask you also, uh, you know the Sib and Lulu. Uh, I think you were you only had eighty percent of that. Now you have a hundred percent. Are you doing anything up there with that this year? Uh, well, it turns out actually, Corey, uh, the Corey property, which is that includes, uh, or sorry, the uh, Sib property, yeah. which includes TV and Jeff, uh, was part of that joint venture that we've extricated ourselves from. So we now have a hundred percent over the whole enchilada. Yeah. Uh, look at at Sib Lulu. This is going to sound crazy, okay? But we we actually see better targets now elsewhere, mm-hmm. and we've debated this internally. And I think we've come to the conclusion that this year, 
we're going to be better served by doing what I said earlier, expanding TV and Jeff, but also testing uh, some of these new targets that we can see via the SkyTem and the, the Blegg data. I mm-hmm. think, you know, I think Sibalulu, while it's quite interesting, it does have some holes in it. And, you know, uh, they're good holes, but guess what? <laughs> we have some anomalies that look much bigger uh-huh. and might be even more important to us. Yeah. You got something called the C10, um, which is right. mentioned in the press release. That must be one that looks especially good to you. The C10 area is particularly intriguing. And in the it, south. It's towards the southern southern end. It is. It's down to the south, and, and like I said, it's right on strike on the east flank of the SK Anticline. It's right on strike with TV Jeff. So I think there's <laughs> ge- you know, geologic continuity clear down there. But, uh, you know, there's two reasons we're very excited about that area. Uh, firstly, the, the bleg data, this the stream sediment data that we have from there, uh, shows a very long, about a six-kilometer long, uh, very high-grade uh, or high, highly elevated uh, gold anomaly mm-hmm. in multiple drainages. Okay, so there's something bleeding out of the ground through that area. Uh, so that's one thing that gets us stoked. And the other thing that gets us stoked is there are historic uh, surface samples down in there, that area that some are grading in the ounce plus per ton range. Oh, boy. Uh, that, you know, from, look, you know, it's historic data, so we don't have, yeah. it sounds like it is BMS related. There mm-hmm. was at least one drill hole down there that hit, I believe, over a little over 100 gram per ton in sulfide mineralization. And mm-hmm. uh, John, the, the, John the Decker, the, uh, exploration uh, VP managed to find a piece of that historic core and everybody agrees that is me about so you know I think I think the C10 area is basically I think of it as an expansion of the TV Jeff story well that is exciting because if I'm looking at it correctly it must be C10 might be around eight or ten meters uh, oh. kilometers south of TV that's right that's correct wow. it's, it's, a way, <laughs> it's a big system <laughs> well, look, uh, we've got that target in the north, too. We, we call it the AP target. It's way up in the northeast, screaming bleg anomaly. Uh, and it's associated with a very discreet SkyTem uh, anomaly, which we think, you know, again, is uh, uh, telling us that there's a, a VMS system up there. Uh, we've got two new anomalies. If you look at this most recent uh, news release, there's two anomalies in the western anticline on the east flank of that anticline mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that have they have no surface samples they have no drilling there's been no prospecting whatsoever we cannot find any historic data on those two uh, gold anomalies so we think those are, are ripe again for discovery of, of new uh, VMS systems uh, Quinn, one, one, uh, just two quick questions. We're just about out of time here. When might we see some assays? Uh, and also, how well-funded are you? I guess you're well-funded to go through this year, but do you think you're going to have to go back to the to the well next year, possibly? Yes. Look, uh, we, we raised money, I think, in November or early December last year. We raised about $13 million, which brought our treasury at that time up to about fifteen. Uh, we have seen some warrants exercise. Uh, I would say we started the season this year a little over $14 million. Uh, we do have plans to spend most of that uh, this season. We're being very aggressive, obviously, with 30,000 meters. But uh, I think that, you know, we will 
uh, get some results out here that'll wow the market. And I mm-hmm. think that uh, once we do have to go back and raise some funds, uh, we should be in a position of strength. Uh, yeah. I would like to see this company continue an aggressive approach. You know, so next year need to see uh, another thirty to forty thousand meter program. There's no question we're onto a discovery here. It's a it's a matter of making sure we have the the uh, horsepower to to get uh, you know keep that momentum going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, as as far as uh, as far timing. as timing go, uh, timing. Uh, <laughs> The labs are full. Uh, from what I can see, they're allocating a certain percentage of their their you know capacity, lab capacity, to each company to try to keep everybody you know, qualified. Uh, but uh, you know, it's going to take a little while. Last year, we finished drilling, I think, October 16th, and we were able to put first news release out with assays around the week. I think it was the week before Christmas, if I remember. Yeah, right. Just a, a little over two months. I would expect the same here. We started drilling. You know, with four rigs, it was, uh, I think, early July, so what is it, September, maybe uh, mid-September call. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it go at that, but it really is an exciting story, and I uh, really, if we can put some numbers to some of that geology that you're talking about, <laughs> I think it's going to get really exciting to people. So thank you so much, Quentin, for being with us, and uh, we'll look to keep up with this story uh, going forward. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. All righty, folks, uh, we do have to go to break, but don't go away. Lynn Alden will be with us to give us her latest ideas on inflation and other very important topics like Bitcoin and gold and oh, a whole lot of things. She's very bullish on oil and gas now, it seems, so we'll ask her about that, too. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Lynn Alden. Lion One Metals is focused on high-grade gold in Fiji, led by legendary Canadian financier Walter Barakoff. Lion One is permitted for production and drilling for discoveries in one of the most exciting high-grade gold projects in the prolific South Pacific Ring of Fire. Lion One trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LIO and on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF. Go to our website at liononemetals.com for more information about Lion One Metals and high-grade gold in Fiji. Labrador Gold is an exploration company focused on its flagship Kingsway project located in central Newfoundland Gold District. Labrador Gold's first phase drilling program has successfully identified high-grade gold mineralization, including a 3.6-meter intercept, grading 20.6 grams per ton gold, and 1.85 meters, grading 50.38 gram per ton gold. The company has approximately $35 million in the treasury and is led by a world-class team of CEO Roger Moss and technical advisors Sean Ryan and Quentin Henney. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Lynn Alden. And uh, you should uh, go to lynnalden.com, L-Y-N-A-L-D-E-N.com, uh, to, um, to take advantage of a lot of very excellent work that Lynn provides free of charge. She does have uh, a service, a very, a very reasonably priced service, I might add, for investors. So uh, this is more of a macro service that's free of charge, but then she applies her uh, her insights into the macro uh, stories to investing, and that's what she uh, she charges people for. But boy, I'll tell you, just just to go to lynnalden.com, there's a wealth of information from a macro perspective that I really I really find enjoyable and very helpful. So, uh, Lynn, thanks for joining me again. Thanks, thanks for having me on again. Always happy it's, to be here. Oh, thank you. It's really great to have you. It's an honor to have you, actually, because I know that. Uh, your, your views are, are widely sought now, uh, much more than when we first met up with you because you do such great work. Uh, I would like to possibly uh, pick your brain a little bit on uh, oil and gas because you seem to have turned, I don't know if, you, if it's fair to say you've just turned bullish, but you seem to be pretty bullish longer term anyway. And then uh, maybe if we have time as well later in the day, uh, why gold and Bitcoin are popular is another piece that you wrote. And, and by the way, folks, there's two. those are two excellent uh, pieces that she wrote and they're not they're not a couple of pages I mean they're very much in depth uh, the uh, the case for longer term oil and gas and then also why gold and Bitcoin are popular an overview of bearer assets and so those are two pieces that I think are very much worth going to recite to read as well as what we'd like to talk to her today about record household equity exposure uh, that's her July 18th newsletter uh, and that's what I'd like to focus on mostly with uh, with Lynn today uh, Lynn, regarding household wealth, I think you, you mentioned in your latest report that it has grown uh, over the years, over the longer term, I'm not sure what the time frame is, something like four times that of GDP. Uh, that, that's pretty amazing I, that, that uh, asset values like the equities could grow so much faster than the real economy is growing. Uh, what, what economic implications does that have? Uh, well, one of the disadvantages is that tends to uh, be negatively correlated with forward long-term returns. So it doesn't really tell us much about what's going to happen in the next, say, 6 to 12 months or even 24 months. Uh, but it generally is not a great sign for, say, 10-year equity performance from here. And, you know, basically, if you look, uh, you know, historically, the market actually, I mean, household net worth actually averaged somewhere around four times GDP on average. Uh, and so actually now it's much higher than that. Uh, and mm-hmm. so uh, it's actually that, you know, it, it's over six times uh, GDP. Oh, uh, and so that that's kind of a record. That's a record high at the current time. And it's it's been somewhat inversely correlated with interest rates. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, as we push interest rates down, as we've done lots of quantitative easing, we propped up equity prices, home prices, uh, bond prices, all these different asset classes are at, at very elevated levels. And then even among those uh, components of net worth, Equities are also at a at a record high percentage of of household net worth at at almost thirty percent, mm. um, and, and historically over the past say seventy years, there's been a pretty strong inverse correlation between U.S. household equity exposure and then the forward ten year returns of of equities as measured by the S and P five hundred. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're we're very stretched now, as you point out. The equity markets are very stretched. Do you worry about a, any kind of a, a serious decline, or do you think the Fed will just keep pumping money into the system to make sure uh, it never, it, it never, quote unquote, never goes down? 
Uh, so I think if we were to see some sharp pullbacks, we probably would see more Fed action. Uh, but there's not a ton they can do at the current time. I mean, they're not buying equities like the, like uh, the Bank of Japan is. Uh, and so their levels, their levers are fairly, uh, you know, not very strong. Instead, what we have to look for is any developments on the fiscal front, right? Because, you know, the, the central bank can lend, but it can't spend, whereas the fiscal authority can spend uh, and then have the Federal Reserve monetize that. Uh, and so that cash can get permanently out into the broad money supply, and that can then boost corporate earnings. It can boost all sorts of different things like that. And so I would look more towards the fiscal side if you were to see a downturn. Uh, than any actions by the Fed, but you know they would get more dovish. Mm -hmm. uh, and and you did talk about uh, so a quote from Stanley Fisher, the uh, former vice chairman of of the Fed, uh, regarding the impotence of monetary policy. So I guess when you get down to around zero or whatever, you can't go much lower. I guess negative interest rates don't really work, huh? And why would that be? Well, because negative interest rates don't really lead to more bank lending. In fact, it can do the reverse because it, it, it gives banks a disincentive to really, you know, take on risk. Um, and it actually drains money out of the banking system. And so, you know, basically, it, that Stanley Fisher, uh, you know, basically that was a BlackRock paper. And they had Stanley Fisher uh, involved with it as an advisor. And it's interesting because that came out in 2019. And that ended up being very, uh, you know, high foresight in terms of what they did. It was pretty much They pretty much laid out the 2020 and 2021 playbook. Back mm -hmm. in 2019, which they said, okay, the next downturn is going to come at some point. Uh, they obviously didn't, you know, predict like a, a virus and other things like that. So this is probably more severe than they anticipated. But they said either way, we're going to have a downturn. Uh, and when that happens, the problem is that interest rates are all, already almost zero, um, and so they don't have a lot of space. And so they they said instead, what they're going to do probably is do a lot of fiscal spending. Uh, but that can be pro-inflationary. Uh, and mm -hmm. they and they said basically with debt so high, they can't allow interest rates to rise. Uh, and so they probably would have a policy of holding interest rates fairly low, basically coordinating between the central bank and the fiscal authority so that inflation runs hot. And it's it's basically, you know, step by step exactly what we've seen mm -hmm. over the over the two years since that paper was published. Yeah. But again, with interest rates or, or with uh, suppressed interest rates, banks can't lend. They, they, there's no way to lend. They can't get they can't get the uh, they, they can't get the interest rates they need to cover their potential losses and make money. So is this why we're seeing money flowing in the reverse repo market? And where does that stand right now? Uh, yeah, so I mean, that's, you know, last I checked, it was around a trillion dollars. It, it varies day by day. Yeah. Um, and the way I've described it before is that in some ways it's the opposite situation of the repo spike of 2019, where in 2019 there were too many T-bills, not enough bank reserves. Uh, and so the Federal Reserve had to start monetizing uh, those T-bills. Uh, uh -huh. they, they didn't want to refer to it as such. Um, and now they've done so much deficit monetization and, you know, partially because of the, the Treasury general account drawdown, right? So the Treasury, the Treasury has a bank account with the Fed, and it's, it was filled with cash. Uh, and they wanted to get that back down to normal targets. So it means they're spending more money on normal government, you know, functions uh, and not really issuing the bonds to pay for that because they've already kind of prepaid for that by issuing bonds over the past year and a half. Mm -hmm. And so they're drawing down that cash reserve. And so all of that is flooding back into bank reserves. Uh, but they have various, you know, SLR uh, limitations about how much, you know, assets they can hold. Um, and so basically what we see is non-bank entities are then pushing that cash uh, into the Fed. Um, and so basically we have, we have, you know, more reserves and the banking system knows what to do with. Mm -hmm. um, and there's actually pretty limited treasury collateral at this point because the Fed has bought so much of it and the treasury is not limiting, not, not issuing too much of it. And that has been compounded by the fact that due to the debt ceiling, uh, the Treasury has drawn down their their cash reserves 
farther than they anticipated. So they've issued fewer treasuries than they anticipated having to issue by this time. Mm-hmm. So the, are the banks getting an, an interest rate? Then they're getting something, aren't they, from the Fed when they put their money there? Uh, well, it's a lot, you know, mainly that's non-bank entities, uh, but yeah, it's closely tied to the banking system, and they are getting yeah. a very, very low interest rate. They're getting a few basis points, yeah. um, and that actually probably has, uh, you know, contributed to some of the strength in the dollar we've seen lately compared to other currencies, right? Because that actually, that's one of the, the tools that the Fed has used to try to prevent short-term interest rates from going into slightly negative territory, uh, but it's a very minuscule interest rates they get in terms of profits. Mm-hmm. Lynn, we've seen this redistribution of wealth. I would argue it started with when we went off the gold standard in 71 very slowly at, at first, but certainly the uh, with the Fed not having its hands tied to create money from, you know, uh, once the gold standard was abandoned, it could create money and thereby finance government activities very dramatically, as I remember. I'm much older than you. Remember the, the squeeze during the Vietnam War and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program. Uh, None of the politicians wanted to tell Americans they had to increase their taxes to pay for those things. So we, the Treasury started going into debt, and then the other countries wanted their gold instead of dollars, and we slammed the window. Nixon slammed the, slammed the gold window shut. But ever since then, you can see debt, federal debt, personal debt, all kinds of debt. We've grown this debt so much so. The federal debt, I don't think anybody believes it can be ever ever repaid, certainly not in, in meaningful dollars. So... It seems to me that what's happened is we've had a redistribution of wealth from the middle class, the manufacturing class, to the uh, to the government, uh, people, the, the, the lawyers, the, the government, the people and corporations that supply the government with whether it's weapons or whatever the government buys. Uh, and then so we've seen this sort of the middle class declining and we've seen the elite class getting richer and richer. Uh, is this then this fiscal uh, set up because actually, as you just point out, banks can't—you can't really get money into the banking, uh, into the into the economy from the banks because of the low interest rates. So I guess the way to try to get money back into the middle class, um, maybe to stave off any kind of serious revolution or whatever, is just to send them money. I guess that's what we're doing, and you expect a lot more of that. I mean, it'll partially depend on election outcomes and things like that. I mean, it's one of those things. There are, you know, there are different ways to try to correct, uh, you know, the the imbalances we have in the system. Uh, for example, someone could, you know, just as easily do payroll tax cuts, uh, which uh-huh. are very good for the working class and middle class. That allows them to keep more of their paycheck, um, and it's essentially, a, you know, basically a, a way to, you know, help moderate the wealth concentration we've seen. Basically, it's one of those things. You know, if you look at just the policies in place. I think we talked about it before in your show that the, the mm-hmm. structure of the petrodollar system mm-hmm. has kind of forced these trade deficits. And so the United States has kind of hollowed out its industrial base and its middle class at a, at a more rapid rate than most other developed countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is, is it's a somewhat of a global problem, but it's more so a U.S. problem uh, in this case. Um, and so there are various levers they can pull, and it'll partially come down to what what they'll get through the Senate. So right right now, I mean, Democrats want to do a pretty large multi-trillion dollar package. Um, they have a little bit of dissension in their ranks, right? So they have a couple mm-hmm. of moderates uh, uh, on board. Um, and so they, they have a little bit of a gridlock in terms of getting that through. We also have to look forward to see what's going to happen with the 2022 elections. And those outcomes can certainly shape the magnitude and the type of any sort of fiscal spending that we can expect over the next few years. Yeah. And I understand there may be some issues uh, in the House as well with moderate Democrats who are afraid and looking to 2022 and worried that if they uh, climb on board with the more aggressive liberal 
uh, policies, they may not make it. So uh, we'll have to keep an eye on that. So it does depend a lot on the politics in the Senate. Um, Republicans would tend to not want to spend as much and probably go the other route that you were suggesting, tax cuts. That's sort of way to do it. Um, what, what do you think the odds are of tapering? Because the market seems to be, you know, it's one of those things. It seems hard for me to see any kind of significant tapering. We've seen what happens when the Fed has tried to taper before, uh, with interest rates somewhat higher than they are now. But what are your what are your thoughts? Are you do you think it's going to happen? Any kind of significant winding back of federal purchases of, of securities? Well, it's funny because partially I don't I don't even fully know if the Fed knows yet. Uh, and so you know my my base case over the past month is that they're getting ready to, to set the foundation for tapering, right? So they put in these two repo facilities that they don't need yet, but they anticipate needing in the future. Because um, uh, right now they have the opposite problem. They have the reverse repo problem, but they actually you know, solidified these repo facilities that they haven't mm-hmm. used for a while. And that's kind of anticipation of them winding down their treasury purchases. They also had a, a number of Fed officials come out and talk about the need of tapering. And you know, basically, we, all, we also have ob- obviously like you know, CPI of like 5.4%. Um, rent inflation still picking up, even though other types of inflation have kind of rolled over. Uh, and so, you know, a month ago, I would have said that, you know, tapering is probably pretty likely to at least be attempted uh, either late this year or early next year. Uh, you know, they they started walking their, their remarks back a little bit uh, in the past week uh, because, the you know, the Delta variant, kind of these re-lockdowns, both in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, the Jackson Hole Symposium, uh, you know, was basically made into a virtual event uh, because of that. Uh, and so we're actually going to get more clarity um, in three days uh, at, at the Powell speech at the Jackson Hole Symposium. Yeah. Uh, that used to be when the market was kind of anticipating that they would, you know, some of a hawkish view, probably announce tapering. I'm less inclined to think they might do that. They either could have a date maybe later than we expect, or they could more clarify the conditions that would lead them to taper. Uh, mm-hmm. Rather than committing to tapering, so mm-hmm. I, I'm somewhat of a you know out, out of the loop as much as anyone else is, and I'm not even sure that the Fed fully knows what they're going to say on on August 27th. Yeah, Let's see which way the wind blows, I guess. And uh, well, it just it just seems hard for me to see. I mean, they can't. What happens if we get a two or three, well, even a one or two percent increase in, in in interest rates? I mean, it just what's that do to the federal budget now? Especially, it's just growing dramatically. Uh, and and they have to suppress the interest rates. How are they going to do that? How are they going to keep interest rates down? I, I don't know. Well, some one of the one of the, like the in, unintuitive things is that you know when they stop doing QE, uh, we don't know for sure what interest rates are going to do because historically, you know, sometimes they can decline in that context because uh-huh. if you look at, for example, GDP growth uh, that peaked back in quarter two of this year and now it's on the downtend, so they would be tapering into a slowing U.S. economy. Um, and so if you don't get that fiscal spending uh, and you have, you know, uh, a tapering QE purchases, we could get moderately high interest rates. We could see interest rates back to where they were before. We could see 2% interest rates. Uh, but it's hard for them to go too high uh, with the economy slowing so much. And if they did, yeah, the Fed would probably have to step in and, and start to do more formal yield curve control. Uh, so that does remain a really big challenge for them at the current time. Yeah, it sure, it sure would seem to. I, I just don't see how we get out of this mess. I, I don't see it because it seems to me like the whole system is sort of diseased. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they, they can't go back to a free market economy because it's just too painful. The whole system would topple over, it seems. So it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think overall, I mean, they're not going to be able to taper for the long term, right? So the last time they tried this, it lasted about five years. So first they stopped QE. 
uh, and then they held flat for a while. Then they started raising interest rates and doing some quantitative tightening. Eventually, that broke the repo market, so they had to reverse course and go to quantitative easing and, and deficit monetization again. Um, and so they, they could go through a period where they, they slow down temporarily, maybe even stop for a little bit, depending on conditions. Uh, but next time there's an economic downturn, they'll find themselves in the in the same slot all over again and probably at a, at a faster pace than last time. Yeah. I, I just don't see how it ends. I, I wish I had a crystal ball. I guess everybody else does too, but... Uh... Boy, it doesn't. I don't see any any happy outcome. You got inflation problems that have to be squeezing. I think, and real wages are declining now with inflation going up. Uh, how is that helping the you know the average person? I don't know. It's uh, it doesn't seem right. And um, just we only have a couple of minutes, three or three or four minutes left here yet, Lynn. So I, I do have to ask you about what, what's your outlook for gold right now and 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 Bitcoin because I know that both of those are are asset classes that you that you're uh, in favor of. I believe. Uh, so I'm fairly bullish on a mix of gold and Bitcoin. Um, mm -hmm. You know, basically we've had a lot better performance out of Bitcoin over the last year or so. Uh, gold's been on the weaker side, uh, but you know that's that's a decent contrarian indicator, right? So gold's had really weak price action. Uh, it's pretty undervalued compared to uh, where uh, inflation-adjusted interest rates are, right? So it's actually you know gold has historically followed inflation-adjusted interest rates pretty closely. And in the past few weeks, it's been a pretty weak relationship. Basically, if you look at the chart, gold would normally be higher uh, based on where uh, real interest rates are at the current time. Um, and so I would say that you know gold should have reasonably favorable outlook, especially if the Fed delays tapering. Now, if the Fed comes out uh, you know in three days and says, "Hey, we're actually going to do tapering starting you know in, in two months, and we're going to you know be an autopilot," then you could see a knee-jerk sell-off in gold. Uh, but if there's any sort of hesitancy or dovishness from the Fed, I wouldn't be surprised to see gold, you know, start slowly grinding up from here. Uh, but of course, that's a trader's market. People can look at the charts and have their their outlook for any kind of multi-month period. Uh, but I'm still pretty long-term bullish on real assets in general. So that includes all types of commodities. Mm -hmm. That includes, say, midstream energy assets. Uh, that includes gold. Uh, that includes Bitcoin. Uh, basically, all, a bunch of different assets that are basically different types of hedges against currency devaluation. Okay, because you see the currency devaluation is inevitable. What do you say to people that say, well, Taylor, you, you've been talking about this uh, this dollar collapse for a long time, but all the rest of them are collapsing too. So what do you say to that argument? What are you, what are you worried about, Taylor? Because uh, the, every everything else is going down, every other currency. Well, that's why I, I prefer to make that view. I express that view through owning scarce assets rather than specific currency pairs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, and mm -hmm. so I, you know, I watch the dollar relative to other currencies uh, because that does influence a lot of things in the macro economy. Uh, different different currencies can move down at different rates and at different times. Uh, but the defense against the fact that most fiat currencies have negative inflation-adjusted rates uh, is to own things that have some degree of scarcity, uh, especially things that are out of favor at any given time. Uh, and so that's my overall kind of protection plan against the you know, periods of currency devaluation. That doesn't mean I want to own zero cash right? because there, mm -hmm. you know, there could be examples where you have, say, deflationary shocks, liquidity problems, and a lot of assets go down and allow that rebalancing. Uh, but it means that you know, my long-term stores of wealth are generally in things that are, that are scarce and useful. Absolutely. Then we'll have to leave it go at that. I'd really like to ask you uh, get your ideas on, on the energy space for sure. Maybe we can have you back to talk about that. Nuclear. Uh, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, anything on nuclear? Uh, do you think there's any prospects of the U.S. becoming a little bit more aggressive in that area? Because it seems to me that would be one answer. 
I'm, I'm long-term bullish on it. Uh, right now, a lot of the demand's coming out of Asia, though. Uh, so mm -hmm. we, we could see more U.S. involvement in the long run, especially if we have more energy and grid problems. Yeah. Uh, but really, yeah, that's a long-term story that yeah, I'm pretty sure bullish is. on. It sure is. Well, thank you so much, Lynn, for being with us once again. Always Thanks, a pleasure Ray. having you. All righty, folks. Well, that is it for this week. Michael Oliver will join me again next week, and David McElvaney returns as well. Until then, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. NV Gold Corporation, trading under NVX on the TSX and NVGLF on the OTCQB, is a gold exploration company focused on uncovering the next multi-million ounce gold deposit in Nevada with an aggressive exploration season ahead in 2021, a tight share structure, strong management ownership, key strategic investors, a globally recognized technical team, report coverage from industry gold experts, and a strong treasury. Visit NV Gold Corp. Corp.com to learn more on this exciting story.